If you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animate chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary. And add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. I'm the favorite of the I, I, I said, okay, so, yeah. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't talk about men at all, except for the fact that, you know, she talks about, she doesn't talk about men at all, except for the fact that, um, that uh, what's his name's crazy. Um, Samuel yeah. L. Jackson is crazy. Yeah, see, I don't know. I think then that's, we almost have too stringent to, uh, uh, a line for what the Bechdel test is. If if that character is completely self-sufficient, and she is, even alongside the eye candy that is Tom Hiddleston, right? Uh, you know, well, <laughs> it's like the other... there's no hint of, of a relationship. There's only this is this is camaraderie, this right? Is... Right. And and I I I was so glad that they didn't embrace at the end or anything like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And the idea that. Um, Somebody said, well, there's no character development. I said, they're on the island for a couple of days running for their lives. What kind of character development are you looking for in that? Well, we get to the moment when Kong saved her from the water and you scoffed. And I said, really, this is the part you find unbelievable. I didn't scoff scoff so much. (laughs) (laughs) In a movie about a giant ape and I, was, uh, I, I made a joke. I, the joke I made was I, w- I woke up this way. That was it. It was I was stretching with the, the Internet meme where she comes out of his hand and she's she's like reclining in his palm. And I, I woke up this way. I was I didn't. It was no no more strained than any other Fay Ray King Kong um, uh Post. Oh, I think I think less strange because it wasn't it, you know even to me that wasn't romance no. that was respect yeah and I, and I liked that about it. it I mean you know the people say it's like well that's not what the story was but like uh, but we know what the story is and if you yeah. want, and if you want to see that story there are plenty of movies that have it there there's Peter Jackson's version and there's the original 1933 oh there's you also know? the one from the uh, 80s 70s is it 70s okay oh yes. Yeah. I always I forget that one, but Jessica Lange's first film. I love yes. I love the I soundtrack. The, the soundtrack for that one is awesome. Oh, I saw that at the Hacienda, in a double double feature with the Shootist. Yeah, John Wayne's last film. Yep, and Jessica Lange's first film together. This is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and we are podcasting on Wednesday. March 15th. It's the Ides of March. No wonder this day was so rough. Is it Ives or Ides? Ides. I-D-E-S. Okay. okay. Yes. And, and now everything makes sense. Um, I just hadn't thought of it in those terms. Huh. I, I, I feel like the Senate has, had uh, converged upon me today. But uh, <laughs> I wish they would converge on someone. Anyway, uh, we are podcasting and uh, across, across from me virtually because we are doing this by skype rick brett snyder 
That's right, fabulous podcast producer. Uh, which room of the Brett Cave are you actually in? The small Brett Cave right now. I'm in. Oh. I'm in the heart of the Brett Cave. The heart of the the uh, the beating heart. The, the atomic pile uh, yes. of of the of the Brett Cave. Excellent. Well, uh, so we have some comics news, some movie news, some TV news. Uh, but first, I do want to say, of course, if you're listening to us on iTunes or Google Play, please rate us, review us, subscribe to us. Uh, and tell a friend. And if you are finding this through the regular website, of course, you see that each and every uh, episode of the podcast has its own page. So we thank you for that. And thank you for going to fanboyplanet.com. Where also, if uh, we talk about something tonight that you feel like you would like to uh, own for your very self and you cannot find it at your local brick and mortar store you are certainly more than welcome and encouraged to uh, use one of the handy dandy Amazon links that are all over the page including the search box on the right anything you purchase through Amazon that comes from Fanboy Planet uh, that it, through the search box from Fanboy Planet gives us a tiny little kickback and we very much appreciate that because it helps defray the cost of this podcast and the website which you can also donate just to help defray through PayPal at editor at fanboyplanet.com. And if you have any questions, comments, comment, compliments, commentary, criticism, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. Uh, and so uh, we are going to start our top story tonight is, I guess we're going to have like two episodes in a row that feature interviews from Cinequest. Uh, San Jose, the Cinequest 2017 just came to an end last Sunday night. And uh, we did get a lot of opportunities to talk to people creating independent films and uh, and films that we hope will become considered less than independent, like uh, it would be picked up by major distributors. We, we don't know. But uh, the tonight, episode one, uh, part one of our Cinequest interviews, is, is a lengthy and intriguing uh, conversation about Shakespeare and superheroes. Uh, that's because it's with uh, Catherine Eaton, the writer, director... Uh, sorry, co-writer, director, and star of a film called The Sounding, and her uh, lovely co-star, uh, Teddy Sears, who uh, listeners of Fanboy Planet um, most likely know as the uh, as Zoom on uh, The Flash Season 2, Jay Garrick slash Zoom, right? So I had the opportunity uh, a week and a half ago to sit down in a dressing room at a California theater with Catherine Eaton and Teddy Sears and really, really love this conversation. I hope you do too. We are here at Cinequest with Teddy Sears and Catherine Eaton, uh, who are the co-stars and Catherine is writer, director, producer, all did you around boom, uh, yeah, you yeah, know, it wasn't independent. Uh, visual effects artist, <laughs> uh, everything, uh, with, uh, with additional dialogue by William Shakespeare of the film, uh, the sounding was it, was that a midsummer night's dream? The 36 version they did that. They said with additional dialogue by William Shakespeare. Oh, really? So that's, yeah, that's brilliant. I should do that actually. Yeah. That, you know, redo the credits. Uh, so the sounding is this, uh, interesting, the the publicity kind of called it this psychological thriller, and I, I I I don't know that I got caught up in that. I was more just caught up in the emotional drama of this thing. So I'm going to start with you, Catherine, uh, which is um, I read some of your background that that you had done this glass house piece of reading Shakespeare and kind of the inspiration. Mm -hmm. But you know what gave you the impetus to turn this into a film? Oh, so it is actually that story is kind of what the where the spark happened. Um, this was originally a play, a one woman show. Um, it was very different, and 
but it, but the character of Liv, the central character in the film, was the central character of the play. And um, uh, and I had performed the play all over the place. I had done it at Carnegie Hall um, because the composer of the play was a well a phenomenal pianist, actually. And um, Lincoln Center, and I did it in Ireland and England, and and I was performing it in this space at the Roger Smith Hotel in Manhattan, which is on the corner of Forty Seventh and Lexington, because a very close friend of mine, wonderful man named Matt Semler, was the artistic director of that hotel at that time. They had an artistic director because the owner is a famous sculptor, James Knowles. Okay. And I was hosting these artist salons at the hotel um, that were a passion project of mine, and Matt had. Um, bravely and blindly uh, been willing to accommodate them because they were kind of a, a, a um, crazy adventure. And during the course of these salons, I had done a few pieces from the show, and he had seen it, and he said, I need you to perform this in this glassed-in storefront space. It's a space where you perform inside, and the sound is piped out onto the street, 47th and Lexington, and 10,000 people walk by every four hours. Um, and they had not done a narrative piece there. They started with fine art, and it was a gallery, and then it became a sculpture, mm-hmm. and then an installation place, and then a performance art place. And they hadn't yet done narrative, and, and Matt's background was narrative work, and he wanted to do a narrative piece. And he said, look, your play takes place inside the observation room of a psychiatric hospital. Please, would you just perform it in the space? And I said, absolutely not. That's crazy. It's, it's, um, it's incredibly, the, the play is really hard. It's, it's very hard. And I felt that it needed the contract with an audience where they purchased a ticket and said, I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen. <laughs> right. So that I could then tell them this very difficult and quiet story. And, uh, and he wore me down, basically. <laughs> and I just thought, why am I in New York if I'm not going to do these strange but wonderful things? And so we redesigned this show to become this hyper-white space that when the lights in Manhattan set this kind of glowing glass box on the corner of 47th and Lexington happened. And inside there was a woman in a gown that was scrawled in Shakespeare. And she was spouting Shakespeare's uh, language as, as if it was her own. And it became this little cult hit. Um, it just ran for two weeks. But during that time, the police had to come because the sidewalks became a fire hazard. And the cars were stopping and wouldn't move through the stop sign. And homeless people were banging on the glass <laughs> saying, we'll get you out. We'll get you out. <laughs> and, you know, wow. mothers and children would come by and fathers and children. And the children would, you know, scream when they were being pulled away. And stockbrokers came and took pictures on their phones. And, um, and pizza delivery guys came who I'm not 100% sure spoke English, but they listened to the whole thing. And the pizzas got cold and they were just wow. amazing. Yeah. And so I was really, really moved. Um, by that experience and that whole time this man came and stood front and center Mm -hmm. and he wore a tuxedo and so I thought that he was a caterer because who else other than musicians (laughs) only wear tuxedos every night but he always had a financial times a peach colored newspaper under his arm and so the guys in the back jokingly called him the financier and after the final night of the performance he waited for me afterwards and said I would like to turn your play into a feature film he doesn't he had he wasn't uh a big theater person, but he loves movies. And he said, there's something about this character that I feel like the world should see. Um, and that began a long process for both of us because he had not done that before. And, and I, I certainly hadn't, but it was the, it was the impetus that began the process of, um, finding our way towards that. And he and I together discovered what that meant. And he and his family have become incredibly close friends and are, were our original backers for the film. And, um, and initially I was just writing the film with my, uh, life partner with Brian Delaney, who's a, a writer, wonderful playwright, and now screenwriter and television writer. 
Um, and then ultimately through a whole other longer story, I ended up deciding to direct it. And I'm so grateful I did because my life has changed in a way that I never imagined would happen. And I will circle back around because I want to get Teddy in on this. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy to listen. I'm so enthralled. No, I know that story. And, and thank you for retelling, you know, thank you for telling that story. Yes, sure. it is in the press kit, but it's not something that easily translates to a podcast of unless course. you're telling it, you oh, know, good. and that's, okay. um, wow. you know, and, and, and I see Teddy enthralled by this. So the expansion of this from a one woman show mm-hmm. and now that you've given me that context feels like, okay, I know what section of the film that's in and they have to mm-hmm. do this entire backstory and bring in. Patty, so how did you get involved in this in this pro- I mean obviously audition but you know yeah but, but this this came to me um, in, in a bit of a strange way it came to me in the normal way in that uh, one of my representatives uh, sent it to me you know like all my uh, jobs I've gotten I've just come through here check this out if you're interested audition for it we'll try to get you in and one of the one of the agents at my agency he, he he's out of New York he was in the New York office he read it and he, I don't know why he just thought of me, and he sent it along to my my point guy out in California, and he said, you know, have Teddy check this out. I just read this really interesting and really different um, independent film, and uh, they have money. It looks like it's going to happen, and see if you know if if there's a spark there. And I read it, and I just couldn't put it down. It was so thrilling to me, just how audacious and different and um, complex uh, it all was and it excited me to no end so I, re- I remember writing them an email back you know an hour and a half two hours later because I, I, I couldn't put it down and I just said I'm, I'm so interested what do we have to do and uh, it, was a, it was sort of a multi-month process in that this being independent film um, you know the schedules often can slide a little mm-hmm. bit based on um, availability and money and a whole host of other things, but I uh, I I read for it. I I did a Skype interview. I sat down for coffee. I mean, I stayed on top of Catherine Eaton, and I really <laughs> I just hung around. I and I I feel like I won the lottery because I I I was persistent, and I I really I just wore her down and didn't give her a choice. That's not entirely true, but I I, I did make it known how interested I was and how enthusiastic I was should they she be you know uh, considering me that that I would jump at the opportunity and that's that's actually what happened um, and this being independent film it, it happened very quickly once it happened mm-hmm. that I received a very um, enthusiastic and emphatic email We'd love to have you join um, here's the rub we we got to get this thing going we have a very soon we by the way thank you for injecting here's you the like rub. that do yeah. you like that I you know. Know. <laughs> yeah. my review is shameless yeah. of doing that I know <laughs> you can't help it I know what room I'm in and um, <laughs> and I got myself to, to New York or they got me to New York very very quickly uh, where we were going to have the luxury of rehearsals two weeks of rehearsals oh nice um, of which I needed every single minute of, uh, and then we we went to Maine, and the film is for the listeners is set on an island off the coast of Maine, and that's where we shot. We shot the first week there, 
and then we did uh, interior, mostly interior stuff on Long Island, and then it was all, all islands. It was just that's the right, first that's one right, was the right. only one. That's off right, Monhegan Island, one, Long Island, next one on Manhattan Hawaiian Island. island. Yeah. Why don't you try that? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. The sounding too, Kauai. Yeah. yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and that, that's how it all unfolded um, unfolded for me, and um, I'm I'm thrilled because you know when you do uh, something that's you know independently financed. Um, it's it can be a miracle to find yourself at the finish line, and, and here we are talking to you at Cinequest. It's exciting that it's going to see the light of day. It's yeah. actually going to be screened for a, for an audience mm-hmm. of people, and uh, and yeah, it's really here we are. It's exciting. You can never guaranteed that, but uh, but here we are. Have you had it with an audience, or is this the world premiere? This is the world premiere. Yeah, okay. I've I've had um, test audiences in during the editing process. Small invited audiences that started with you know close close to the vest, and then mm-hmm. expanded out to people that I didn't know. Um, and that was a great process. My producers and editor uh, helped um, facilitate. Which was very helpful. So I, I feel prepared, but I'm really excited to share it. Yeah, and, and, and this existed as a short at one point. So I want to talk to again, time to expanding out to Teddy. You had the Frankie Faison character mm-hmm. in in there in Live. I think this movie was called Live for a while. Mm-hmm. Right? IMDb yeah. listed that way. Um, what, what challenges do you have in expanding out to bring this backstory in? Well, and it actually is a strange, um, it's a great question, but it's a strange journey the way that it happened because um, what it happened was, it, this points to what we were talking about before, but so initially I was just going to co-write it and I was going to act in it. And I didn't, I had never directed a film. It didn't occur to me to direct the film. And we brought on a really uh, um, experienced producer from Los Angeles who uh, took the project on Braxton Pope and we brought it out to the town, as they say, um, and uh, that was a really new experience for me, and I had a very naive approach to it. So um, every time they submitted directors, the, the big agencies submitted directors to us, I thought that every director on that list was interested in directing this film, which isn't the case um, for, for people who are listening who are like me. Um, what, what it actually is is the agency is, is saying, Maybe this person might, under certain circumstances, perhaps be interested in directing this film, but they had not considered it. And many of them weren't specifically, wouldn't necessarily be interested in a low-budget indie uh, feature. But anyway, so I thought that they were, and so I did all this research, like loads and loads and loads of research, and um, and uh, on these directors, and ultimately realized, well, the producers approached me, independent of the investors, all came to me at a certain point and said, we actually think you should direct it at this point. You're talking about it like a director. You see it like a director. You see the visuals. You know how to elevate the script. And I said no initially. And then I went home to my partner, to Brian Delaney, who co-wrote the script with me. And he said, I really think you should rethink that because nobody writes that golden ticket for a first-time director. Nobody says, here is your budget. Go direct your first feature. Um, I really think you should rethink it. And so what I did was, at that point, we had the script already with Teddy's part in it. We hadn't gone to actors because we didn't have a director. But I said, okay, what I'm going to do is direct a short film. That's a scene that could have been in the feature, but isn't. Okay, so that's what it is. And then I'm going to play live, and I'm going to see if I can direct and act, and if I enjoy it, if I have a point of view, if there's an aesthetic, and explore, you know, the team. And so I directed the short film over the course of three days, and it was the most creatively rewarding thing I'd ever done. So then I knew that I, I had to, I had to do it, mm-hmm. and there was no going back. So that's what led me to directing the feature. But we already had the script, and already that backstory that involved Teddy's character. It just wasn't until we had a director mm-hmm. that we could go out to actors on it. And right, it is a golden ticket. It is at a time when, and I'm, we've been discussing this a lot here at Cinequest, 
um, USC just released their study and uh, of how few women directors there are, how few get a shot. Yeah. A woman director directs once every 10 years. I mean, it's like cicadas in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. because no, I, I didn't know. What I saw what, when I was watching the film and thinking about this, because I have a former student, I used to teach drama, and she uh, has a short in competition here. Wonderful. Um, you know, as a director. And I was like, great, she's 19 at USC going, yes. And then I see your film and go, yes, here it is. You're really writing your own ticket and creating. And do you feel that yes. you have to control? You're not just, not just have a career, control your career. Yeah, I, I don't think about it so much from the perspective of control, um, only because there's so little control in it, believe it or not, in the end still. There's... Mm-hmm. You know, what, making something like this takes such a convergence of events and so many people and so mm-hmm. much creative work that, in in truth, I, my desire and will certainly was a huge part of the continuing mm-hmm. to push to push the project forward. But um, uh, what I do think about it as is, I wanted to be an initiator of narratives, and as an actor, well, I love acting. I love it. Um, you are an interpreter of narratives. You do create a vast narrative yourself, you know, behind what pieces of it you're given in a script. And, um, and it's beautiful because it's a love of humanity. It's the art form of being, of, of, of being a human being. That's what mm-hmm. I think of acting as. Um, but I was really interested in, in, in genocizing the stories that I might be in. And also the opportunity to then give work to other artists that I know and I love and I think are extraordinary. And, um, and now that's something that I really want in my life. I do. I love acting and I'm, and I'm continuing to act in other people's work and it's, it's wonderful. It's a joy, Mm -hmm. but I need now to also tell stories, to write them and to direct them as well, because, um, and you're right about women directing and in fact, uh, all diverse directors, I was teaching, I was doing a, a, subbing in for class at Harvard, and I was talking about independent directing. And I give this speech, and I won't give the whole speech here, but the short version of it is simply that um, every single voice is unique. I don't care what color Mm -hmm. you are, what you look like, what your background is. You can be the, you know, the, like... um, majority white male and you still have a unique story to tell and we still need that story the thing is we need them all we need the mm-hmm. palette we need the range and right now that range isn't available to us um, and it is disheartening those studies are because they're they have they're, they've gotten worse not better since we've yeah. been having the conversation about women in Hollywood while there are loads of people that are championing it and lots of opportunities to take a lab or to get support, actually getting those projects made, there's still some kind of a bottleneck there. And, um, and it needs to change because it is through these stories, these stories that we tell ourselves as a society, they're what teach us how to be. And if there's no story where I can see myself or you can see yourself or I can see someone I've never thought of before mm-hmm. and learn about them wherever I am in the world, that's a problem because that is, is limiting it's stymieing our ability to grow as a society, our ability to imagine what we might become. So I think it is really important. I'm very grateful to be doing it myself at this point. Um, I hope that I'll have loads of opportunities. I haven't had, uh, I haven't felt doors closed to me, but mm-hmm. I see the numbers. So, you know, 
just keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because you know Teddy has spent some time on a show that um, you know my site is Fanboy Planet, so <laughs> I'm going to be honest. That, you know, yeah. How I know you? That that's a series that seems to be much more diverse than what I see on on the big screen. Yeah. You know that that I notice that, and and I, when I look at who's directing episodes of OCW and some yeah. HBO dramas, a, a lot more doors are open to women there, and which proves. Proves to me this is stupid. Women should be directing films. I, I don't know why there's this blockade because television's proving the point. It's there's it's still a problem in television. It's been more they've been more vocal in television, but women directors are still fi- finding challenges there. But there's also really amazing programs that are happening to adjust that, mm-hmm. like Ryan Murphy's Foundation, mm-hmm. Half Foundation, right. incredible program that's that's committed to sixty percent of all directors being women or people of color on mm-hmm. all his shows, which is mm-hmm. you know that's fabulous. I didn't amazing know that. stories. Yeah. Yeah. We're on American Horror Story, yeah. so yeah. that's you right. Know. You were, I forgot. yeah, 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 first, yeah. Yeah. Um, first season, yeah, yeah. So it is still a problem in television, but it is being changed. But the visuals in television, the stories are way more diverse and really exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, yeah. I think there's. I'd like to believe we're moving in the right direction. I'd love to see the numbers changing to, to yes. corroborate that. Yeah. But I feel it. I feel like it's happening. I feel like the stories are, are diversifying. And I think mm-hmm. a huge part of that is being able to work with people who want to collaborate. Teddy was yeah. amazing to work with. A huge oh, gift, like an oh, incredible well, collaboration. I want to remind people, you're in the room. Let's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I am, but I am so. I, I, Catherine is well, is a better speaker than I'll ever be. First of all, and so I'm, and it's not like I'm seeding the stage here. I'm enthralled by the points that you're making and 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 how you're making them. Um, yeah, it's. I would love to see more female directors. It's it's. I mean. It sucks that we have to make a distinction, male director, female director. It really sucks. I mean, I had someone ask me the other day, like, what, what was it like, you know, like working with the first-time female director? And I, was, I, I don't give a shit if it's a first-time female director or male director. So it's a first-time director. First-time director. And I, I mean, I sung your praises because I, I'm just in awe. Catherine Eaton being a first-time director was as poised and and thoughtful and and calm you know, I want to say that because it's it's not often that a first-time director would, would exhibit any amount of calm with all of the balls you have to juggle throughout, um, you know, throughout the, the production process. But, uh, uh, yes, I, I first-time female director, first-time male director, it doesn't matter to me. Just that, uh, I'm going to just backtrack because it, it actually does matter that, that, you are directing as as a female. It does matter to me. I, I think I don't know. I, I just think that there's there's a greater care that's taken um, that oh, I've found. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's and, uh, not to say you know males are this way and females are that way because we're there's lots of shades of gray here. But the care that you took in telling the story, and I know it's so close to you, and you, you did birth this idea and birthing this character, and you knew her really well, but. Um, yeah, the level of care you took with all elements of production, the other actors, the, the performances, of course, but but the you know the the guys behind the the lens, the, the the boom guys, the location guys, just you. I hope you have a very long and a very rich career ahead of you. And, I, and there is, based on my experience, I've been very very lucky to do lots of different things. But based on what I experienced here with you on this project. Um, I think the road is going to be long and I hope the doors stay open for the duration for you. And I can't see any 
I cannot see anything from looking back on my experience that would cause me to think that that, that, that wouldn't be the case um, okay. for for what that's worth. Um, well, it's worth a lot to you me. transitioned to me an interesting qu- point or question is yeah. watching the film. I think it's really a triad. I mean, and I must acknowledge Harris Eulen, and I see. Of course. Three of you at different stages in your career, and I got excited last night. I was told Harris is going to be here, and I said I have no idea because seeing him in this film is yeah. we've got you as a first-time director transitioning to film from stage, mm-hmm. uh, and you, longtime television actor, yeah. I assume some stage work. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and then you're working with Harris Eulen, who is oh. to me this you know he is the the yeoman, and he's the journeyman. He's, he's been there. He's a journeyman legend, yeah. uh, consummate pro who has been in more. I think. Iconic projects, yeah. Projects. He was amazing. Yeah. He's he is here. He, I mean, he's coming here tonight for the for okay. the premiere. Yeah. Um, he's not here yet. He's not in San Jose yet. But he, uh, I love that man so much. He's he was a joy. I did not know him before we began work. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was looking for someone for that role. I knew of his work. I looked more deeply into his work, and we went on offer to him just a direct offer, and he read the script. And simply on the basis of the script, he didn't even have a phone call with me. He said yes, which to me is a measure of trust. That's just because, I mean, I could have yeah. been a disaster as a director, you know. But he, I, I don't know what, I, he just told me, he said that the script was so, the part was compelling and he wanted to do it. But then he asked for a meeting after he had said yes. And he invited me to see uh, a play that he was directing at Juilliard. And said, "Come see the play." Yeah, and no slasher. A Shakespeare, yeah. <laughs> no right? Slasher. A Shakespeare. So I was also like, "Okay, come see the play, and uh, we'll have a coffee after." And then I'm meeting some friends, and I said, "Great, you know." So I went and saw the play. It was fantastic. I met with him for coffee. He suffers no fools. You right. you need to really. Um, he wants honesty, and and but he's a gorgeous human being, and so bright, and so and cares so much about the work. Nothing else matters. Tell the truth in the story. That's all that matters to him. He has no ego. Um, he's just gorgeous. And so I met with him for coffee and ended up staying with his friends. And throughout the, the, we spent the whole first day together and it was really incredible. And then the next time I saw him was in rehearsals with Teddy and it was just the three of us had a really amazing time exploring. And, and there was a great chemistry and a great. So he was directing a Shakespeare play. That's fate. Yeah. Why Shakespeare? And, and, and for you in particular, I mean, because. The thing that you have, you have this quiet stillness. I mean, it's hard to hold that film against what lived oh, yeah. is raging. You know, and and when you finally I hope no spoilers, but you know, you get your chance to, <laughs> to, to respond in her language. Right. Right. And so, you know, what is it about Shakespeare? I mean I, I have my answer, but you know, for you two. I'll I guess I'll start by saying I I've always been a lover of language. It was the thing early on in high school, 15, 16 years old, and actually even even earlier that I just, it was like the subject I loved the most, something about words, something about sounds. I, I don't know. I was not acting at the time. I just loved literature. I just thought it was wonderful. I remember studying Shakespeare in high school. Um, I'm not a classically trained Shakespeare actor. I'm not any measure of a trained Shakespeare actor, but I have always just thought he, you know, uh, Shakespeare's works I mean, listen, there's nothing like him. And, and there's a reason, you said earlier, that there's a reason that we still, we, we still do it. We mm-hmm. still do his work. We still do his plays. We still reference him. Um, and I think it's precisely because I'm such a, uh, a lover of language, but also such a Shakespeare novice that I was attracted to. I mean, something about Shakespeare so in this piece of writing was so audacious to me and so 
you know, it felt left field until I uh, until I finally understood it that um, that I was really attracted to, and I was particularly attracted to this showdown scene. You know, at the end of the piece, no spoilers, but where uh, you know uh, Michael um, meets Liv on her terms, mm-hmm. and how uncomfortable that made me, and how challenging that was. Not not me personally, but um, yes, me personally, but truly for Michael the character, how off balance that that must have made him feel. And I just wanted to to dive in and go there. I, I can't I can't explain it any other way. I just wanted to have to to just swim in those waters and, and sort of see what happened. I don't know. It was it was that challenge that got me really excited. Um, it was really... I didn't know what was going to happen. That's what made it thrilling. So would you like to now go on stage and try it? Oh, oh, God, no! I, I, think, <laughs> I mean, not not for you know. Maybe if, if if my parents are in the audience, and if the audience is made up of only my parents, like I, <laughs> not, I, 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 I don't, I don't think I have those. I, I don't know that I have those chops. Uh, and may, maybe I'm um, going to throw I, back to you, though that remember in Shakespeare's day, no one was classically trained in Shakespeare either. That's you know, I've never Fair actually way. heard it heard it put that way. Um, yeah, I'm I'm I, you know, I'm happy. Be where I am right now. Oh, right. <laughs> but I don't know that I'll be doing it anytime soon. And uh, he's wonderful in I'm that still scene. Realizing. I, you know, I, I felt that she was a nice, really cathartic moment. I'm like, when is he going to get to do that? You know, although I was just like I say, I've long believed this, but it was like, oh, Shakespeare has a word for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it sounds silly to say it that oh. way, but that's really what it, you know, watching you do that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I've been saying to people, and yeah, okay, you know, and he said it best, so wonderful. Um, so I, I will go back to what, what you where you're comfortable where you are, and I have to ask one fanboy question, yeah. which is if they found a way for <laughs> I, I was thinking about this Hunter Zolomon on Earth, Earth One, One still exists, still exists. <laughs> and we haven't, we haven't oh, you broke story. my son's heart. Oh, I just want to yeah. say that. <laughs> I, listen, I, 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 first of all, I you know as Black Flash, that's a possibility. Even though I know that he's shown up on Legends this season, and may, he might just be a CG animated. It, it was silly, you now. know. I know it wasn't you. That's all that you know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't <laughs> so. Uh, so that you know, Zoom Zoom is now Black Flash and. Black Flash occupies a very specific and very special place mm-hmm. in the sort of the, the canon of in the Flash mythology. But yeah, Hunter Zolomon Earth One has it, that remains an unexplored story, and I have you know I've made it known to Andrew Kreisberg uh, and the Helbing brothers who are the head writers mm-hmm. on the show that they 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 got me whenever they want me. Uh, I know that they'll be. There's always logistical stuff, you know. I'm on mm-hmm. Fox show, and it, you know, would they approve? Let's say all that stuff is easy to take care of. Uh, if they want me, they they got me, man. I, so send I, your emails. Yes, yes. No, I'm serious for those to, listening. Or, or tweet uh, CW tweet flash exactly. the, the flash TV or something. I can't remember those, what whatever it's at the underscore flash. Oh, is there? Yeah. So see those people. Those the the people at the CW who read they read everything. They mm-hmm. they, they pay attention. Then this show is written. Supported and exists because of the fan support. No fans were out of business, or they're out of business. I'm no longer on the show. But uh, yes, I would. I would love to. But you've got a bit of immortality. I mean, at least pop culture immortality. You said you've been up here to San Jose twice. I have already. Like this is my third time in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and so and that fascinates me now that you know you're going to have this 
convention career, and I, which I think is kind of cool. I but, love them. I love them. I love meeting fans, man. I love I love mixing it up, and I love seeing them in the faces of the people who who kept who keep the show on the air. That you know, yeah. the people who tune in every week. So we did it. We did it, it for the crowdfunding campaign. Oh yes, we yeah. did. We did crowdfunding for the post production in the film, and Teddy generously gave us some flash memorabilia. And he gave us the jacket that Jay Garrick wore in the show. Not the lightning bolt, not the right, but, yes, his, but the yeah. leather jacket. Yeah, it so yeah. it went in ten minutes. <laughs> the, the the flash yeah. memorabilia went. Those fans are phenomenal. And I and I wish I, I had more. Um, I honestly no, I, you were great. I signed a couple Zoom pops, and we and and they, they sold went the like that. And I just thought that's that's an audience. That's a that's yeah. an audience. Yeah, so. and it's an audience I I I really love and and, and appreciate. I I I, I refuse. To accept that I have any sort of immortality, but uh, but the fact that um, people still want to shake my hand is well, very, very I, in cool. pop culture life. Let's go that. You know, life. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, particularly you know um, now that well, this show's still on the air. But yeah, no, thank you. I'm, I'm squirming for those who can't see. I'm squirming in my seat. I'll get a photo, but <laughs> I'll recreate this moment. Maybe, yeah, recreate the right. picture. Arms <laughs> folded and yeah, squirming in the corner. Oh. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've left you squirming, yeah. I'll cut. This has been a long conversation. Thank you so much for giving me this time. And Absolutely. It was a good luck with this film. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. And uh, I, I, I will say, last thing is, um, this is the world premiere tonight here at Cinequest. Uh, hopefully, it, it starts a nice long run here, festival run, and then beyond. But the soundingfilm.com. Um, anyone listening wants to get info on the film where it's going to screen next. All the info is going to be there. It's going to be updated constantly. I don't know where we're going from here. Actually, I have some ideas, but that will <laughs> they're secret, be their secret until mm-hmm. they're not. Uh, and um, thank you all for listening. If you're listening to this, you've gotten through the whole conversation. Thanks for no, no, no. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm sure thank they you. have. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and please check the film out uh, and check the website because there might be other ways that we can get the film to you besides just the festival run. Um, and we, we we hope that you enjoy it as much as we do. So, that was a cool conversation. Uh, shall we get to the regular news of the week? Please. All right. Let's do a little bit of comics. Uh, of course, as we mentioned, uh, up top, probably the news this week that excites uh, both Rick and myself the most is the return of Darth Vader. You thought he'd gone, he never went away, really. But recently, Marvel brought Darth Vader, uh, the solo book, to an end with issue number 25. And we thought it was to spin off Dr. Aphra into her own solo title while Darth Vader bedeviled uh, the regular heroes of Star Wars in the ongoing Star Wars book. But no, it was so that they could actually rethink and redo Darth Vader. Not redo, uh, but, but to go back in time even further. And they just announced this week that there's going to be a new Darth Vader number one uh, written by Charles Soule going back into the time right after Revenge of the Sith. Now, since I really haven't watched nearly enough Rebels, and I know Darth Vader showed up on that show, yeah, have they have they explored that time at all? I mean, even when you t- when you get rid of the Legends or what used to be the expanded universe, well, um, the 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 Clone Wars and Rebels are are um, canon. So, right, but Clone Wars is between Attack of the Clones right, and Revenge of the Sith. Right, right. I'm just so saying. This is right after, and Rebels is, I know Darth Vader has been on Rebels. Yes. That's what I'm saying. So I don't know how much has been explored about what happened as he, I guess it's the formation of of Darth Vader, which actually I would say I almost prefer, again, give me this big long, I loved what that 25-issue run 
of Darth Vader did with the character. Oh, it's just the best, yeah. A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Um, So go back and sell this other. I would rather, I am getting to that point again. It's like, oh, that'll fit neatly in a trade paperback on my shelf. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This little, uh, you know, these discrete stories, uh, which actually when we play and when we talk about what's in the bag, I mean, that's going to be, I'm coming around on certain concepts, and that and that is one of them now. Is where I can go. Okay, I've got this coherent, you know, set of trades or or one trade, you know, miniseries, if you will, that tells me a really cool story, and it can jump around. I'm feeling that way about movies too. But um, at a time when movies try to move towards shared cinematic universes and a, and a shared continuity, I'm all for let's break it apart. But anyway. Uh, so we're very excited about that. And Charles Soule, I still have no idea when that man sleeps, because isn't he writing like 16, 17 books a month? <laughs> and, and he's a partner in his own law firm. Uh, you know, so I, I, sharks never sleep, I guess. You know, maybe he sleeps like one hour a night. I don't know. And that's all he needs. Um, but I did want to – there's been a couple of uh, uh, potential uh, seismic shifts uh, in uh, – in comics dis- distribution this week, uh, a rumor is cropping up. It's not a done deal. It's not officially announced, but uh, this is interesting. And I have to admit, uh, after the size of this week's comic book stack, um, that that I may, you know, this may change a lot for me. Is that DC is rumored to be in talks with Amazon to do a ver- their version of the MCU of Marvel Comics Unlimited. Uh, for a subscription price of, of eight to twelve dollars, I mean Marvel's tw- is ten dollars a month, so DC uh, may do ten dollars. That they're going to do the same thing and allow you to yes, they'll be like four or five months old, no books, you know, write no day and date books, but if you're willing to wait for continuity and with the size of my stacks, I have no choice. I buy them on time and I don't read them. <laughs> so it might actually say, be saving me a lot of money to have access to those phases, the back catalog that I probably wish I could go back and read the most anyway. So there's, there's that. And then a company this week officially said yeah, called Emerald comics out of Seattle is going to go into comics distribution, which diamond has had uh, a monopoly. Yeah. I know it's such an ugly word. What was but, the, what uh, was the company that they bought when they got, when they took over the monopoly that, uh, Oh, the one that Marvel had. Yeah. That, that Marvel bought and messed up. Um, you know, I, it's been so long. Yeah. I, I heroes world. Was that what it was? Were they, was that who Marvel bought? Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this Emerald Comics is now they're saying they're going to start with with indie books. But, you know, the thing is, I was thinking about it, I was going, well, DC and Marvel claim to be exclusive with Diamond, but that was when there was competition. So I don't know how long that deal was supposed to last. It's possible that this Emerald Comics could come up and uh, change everything. And, you know, DC or Marvel could say, uh, all right, we need a West Coast distributor. We need somebody with a better you know, with a better service record. I, you know, I don't know. I encourage any upstarts, uh, any co- company to do this because if there's more than one distributor, then the two distributors uh, kind of have to uh, be better than they are. You know, uh, or at least Diamond has to be better than it is because it, it's easy to just say, well, they're the only game in ta- town, so what are you going to do? You know, um, 
if you want your if you want hard copies of your books. Right. So anyway, that's uh, that's to me the comics news. We're going a little you know going a little quickly through some of this stuff because because of course that that interview was was a bit lengthy. So thanks for sticking through it. You know, I hope, again, you enjoyed it. Let's get to what's in the bag, Rick. What's in your bag this week? Well, my first book is uh, Amazing Spider-Man issue number 25. And this is noteworthy because of the weight and the lightness it will lightning it will have it will the lightning that it will do to your wallet because it's a ten dollar book and it's a straight up issue twenty five between the normal priced issue twenty four and hopefully back to normal priced issue twenty six. I hope this is not uh, the precursor of things to come. However, it's a pretty magnificent cover. Uh, starting uh, there, actually, there are two. There are two major Spider-Man villains who get re- that actually get rebooted in this issue. Um, one in the main story, which takes up about half the book, and the other in a, in one of a series of about six side stories, um, including what I know you've been looking forward to, Derek, and that is um, Spider Sumsum. Oh sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got that that to look forward to. It's it's only about six issues, six pages long. Uh, I'm still just impressed that they managed to make that continuity. It it's just astounding to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a sticky bit of continuity. Um. But anyway, I know I, this is a ten dollar book. I don't know that uh, it. When I when I looked at this and I said, okay, three times as big, and the the story that they got on the cover, the Osborne identity, looks like it could be something that you know they could just say, hey, let's just throw three issues worth of story into one book and be done with it. No, but, no, that'd be too satisfying. But they only took half of the book to do that, to really just get to the introduction of what's going to be an ongoing storyline. So for a while, for a while, I was flashing on the original. Um, do you remember the original Spectacular Spider-Man books? They sold yeah. for like a whopping 35 cents and 50 cents. Peter Parker, let's be fair. It was yeah. called Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. So, yes. Was that right? The, no, I'm talking about the oversized magazine size ones. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. The, the, right. I, I and it, the, it had the, the storyline where Osborne finds out that Peter is Spider-Man in it. It was a really, it was a magnificently scary and... Uh, and action pack. Was that thirty five cents? Because I, th- I never saw those on the stand. I think it was thirty five cents. I actually and had. I don't think I bought one. I bought mine at Marvel Galaxy from their their stack of used of uh, of back issues. I was going to say, and I never saw number one. I always saw number two of that. Yeah, I've got bookstores on the wall. I've got so. both of them in the in the Brett garage. So. Yeah. So that's uh, that's my book number one, Amazing Spider Man twenty five. I, I you know. If you can afford the ten dollars, it it's probably worth it. The side stories are not just throwaway stuff. There is the last side story is one that if you're a Spider-Man reader, you want to read. Well, I'm sure. I guess, but this is where I get frustrated. They didn't have, you know, they don't have to do it. Especially with so many reboots, your opportunity for these anniversary issues yeah. is coming more and more often. 
You put, you know, they charge ten bucks for this at the same time that they're complaining that their sales are down, and which they did. They spent at Comics Pro. Marvel specifically said last year, you know, uh, last month, that it was returnable books were killing them, and you know, no one's. And yet, there are a couple of retailers that kind of groused back and said, "Look, it's ten dollar books that are killing you. It's, it's everything being an event." It's, uh, as I, I heard tonight, and this is a non-scientific sampling, uh, a title that should be one of the best sellers for Marvel, Deadpool, at, at uh, Elusive Comics and Games, has gone down 40% in sales. Because they did a couple $10 issues, you've diluted the brand by having Gwenpool, you've got, uh, you've got Deadpool appearing in about four different books at the same time, when he's a character that should just be focused on his I mean, it's not the first time that Marvel's done it, and DC is certainly guilty of doing it. Um, but it's just ten bucks, man. That's that's three DC books, you know, Rebirth books. Not yeah. I should say ever, you know, because and and really, if you'd gone up to four ninety nine and given me this first chapter of the Oz, what is it, the Osborne identity? Right. That would probably have been enough. Now, and I say that knowing that one of the backup stories is by Christus Gage, and I really like Christus, and I love I love his Spider-Man work, and I love him getting this opportunity. But on the other hand, it's just like, man, I, you know, I don't even think about it, and I should, but there are a lot of people out there that are going to have to think about it. All right, if you're a Spider-Man fan, it's totally worth it. But if you're thinking about being a Spider-Man fan, 10 bucks, it's, it's hard to want to jump on board. And I'm going to say counter. My next my next book is going to be Aquaman, number oh. 19 at 2.99. And the reason being to make a larger point, I am coming around to the idea of you tell me the name of this arc and I can jump in. I may be behind on all this other stuff, but I'm really appreciating. So there's H2.0 part one is Aquaman number 19. Right, right. I, I love Aquaman. You give me a little header up above and tell me this is where I can jump in on this story. And I can go back in my stacks later and find the previous stories, but I can start on this. I can jump in here. I'm really appreciating that guidance. I do. I like that, too. I was actually going to mention that because one of the books I've got later on. But the one thing that they do is they, they say part one. They don't, tell me how, they don't tell you how many parts they're going to be. And part one only occurs on the first, for, on the jumping on part. Yeah, well, and that's fine. And it doesn't it doesn't occur know. when they're when the story is only one book long. Yes, yes, but uh, like I see this on another title, just saying there's such title. But I'm appreciating it because then I know. All right, I've got a stack of Aquaman. I haven't finished. Uh, you know, I finished the art, the first arc, and then I fell behind. But now I know I can at least jump in and go. Well, yeah. I can enjoy this and catch up. Yeah. And if it was if it's been re if it's been well written all along then I can go, you know, I can still go back and appreciate what had happened before it's, by reading it. It is a subtler version of what Marvel tried to do with their Marvel now number one, yeah. number 15, yeah. which is number one, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I just like that. And once again, you know, I just think Aquaman rules. So, yeah, there we go. Uh, what's next on your stack, Rick? So next on my stack is, hey, the banner is I Am Bane which is Batman number 19. And this is the fourth of what I'm assuming is going to be a five-issue run because it's dealing with a... Uh, the plot The plot characterization requires there to be five knights. 
that this is taking place in. So it's uh, it's going to conclude next issue with the fourth uh, I Am Bane uh, introduction. And this has just been, I mean, the uh, the latest run of Batman has been so good. I'm I'm not as enamored with uh, with Detective as much, um, but the Batman run has been wonderful, and this this even blends into what they were doing with with detective in that um the supporting cast on this uh, with uh, dick grayson and or, or nightwing and and the and robin and and catwoman and and the, the everybody's involved it's not batman's solo book it's it is another team book at least for this storyline so um and the art's been wonderful. The story's been great. I like the new take on Bane. Um, yeah, just uh, really gushing Excellent. on Batman. Excellent. I'm, I'm realizing that every one of my choices tonight begins with the letter A. Uh, I, I, that's <laughs> a strange coincidence, uh, because next on my stack is American Gods. Technically, though the cover doesn't say it, uh, it's shadows. Uh, oh no, I, I guess I'm sorry. I'm just seeing it uh, all over the place. This is shadows. It is American Gods number one, an adaptation, of course, of Neil Gaiman's uh, great, great novel, which is about to come to stars uh, on April 30th with the first episode of that series. Um, but this is by Neil Gaiman, adapted uh, with. Let's see if they're going to give it that um, story and words script adaptations by P. Craig Russell. Layouts, so, script and layouts, script and layouts. But I, I, I and and with full art by by Scott Hampton. But I wanted to call out P. Craig Russell for scripting because I think he's also he had also done the adaptation of uh, the Graveyard Book. So um, this falls under if you look at the back cover under Dark Horse's sub imprint of the Neil Gaiman Library. But uh, just in regard, just in general, look, I love this novel. I love the artwork of P. Craig Russell and Scott Hampton, and together, my gosh, it's gorgeous. So I already know it's a great story. I'm really looking forward to actually diving back into it tonight and and enjoying, although I still have to reread my copy of the novel before uh, before the Star Series starts up again. But uh, and you got a, and you got Glenn Fabry covers. This is one quality book, three ninety nine. There were three different That's covers on this. Um, oh, I got the I got the the uh, Glenn Fabry painting, and that was the one that um, yeah. Dark Horse had initially released. And, and, and yeah, it's uh, the 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 Bull Man. Yeah. Um, you want to say Minotaur? Yeah, is he a Minotaur? Okay. Well, he's got tattoos. I guess so. Uh, it's it's uh, you know he's 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 a god in America. Um, I'm I'm with you almost all the way. Um, certainly, I I I love. P. Craig, P. Craig Russell. I always want to call him Philip. Um, because and the layouts and the script are nice. I was let down, I think, a little bit by Scott Hampton's art in this because I really I expect more from him. I mean, he his work in like Lucifer and um, his his prior Vertigo books had much more of a painted and rich feel. Um, there's not a lot of of uh, color in this which may be an editorial change it's it's very muted um and i would say that'd be an editorial choice except for there's a backup story that is 
specifically done by uh, Russell. Yeah, I and, see it. And it's it is really when I when I saw his name associated with this book, the last four pages of this book is what I was really expecting this book to look like. But I'm I'm fine with I'm fine with Hampton. I I hope he he injects a little more energy into successive issues. I'm not going to be buying this. I, I, I'm not going to be buying the individual issues because I know I'm going to buy the trade. And I've having oh, that's a good point too. Having read the book and going to watch the uh, TV series, if I can cut out one vector of of supporting <laughs> of, of rereading this same story over again, it will be not in not buying the individual issues outside of this number one issue. It is interesting because I look at this and the casting. Uh, shall we say of the characters uh, definitely uh, Shadow's wife uh, the name is escaping me uh, uh, it, it looks like Emily um, oh, what's her name it's playing it playing uh, the character she was in the original um, series of unfortunate events uh, she looks very much right and then uh, uh, but Shadow's boss Mr. Mr. Wednesday is uh no, I'm thinking that's the wrong name too. But you can tell I am tired tonight. Um, but it, it, it's uh, Ian McShane in the TV series, and it looks right. like Rip Torn in the comic. So uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Just you, you're, you're almost like with with uh, with the, with this, you're almost in like an alternate casting of of, of the TV series. And I think they are going to be different because I yeah. know that the TV series has changed some things in order to make it a television series, and it should be. And I love yeah. that. I, I, I love seeing the same story kind of go through different lenses and and, and go through. So yeah, I do. The, I do not want a comic book version of the TV series. I want yeah, and something. we're not getting it. Yeah. That's not what we've got here. Yeah. This is Dark Horse's take, and I'm excited for it. Yeah. I, I get your sense. You know, I agree with you. Uh, I'm probably going to – well, who am I kidding when I say probably? I'm going to buy it in, in probably a hardcover, uh, but I like being able to – hey, this is one book I know I can kind of – I'm here at number one. So I enjoy number ones because I feel like, yes, I can I can at least pretend for one month that I'm <laughs> So, what's next on your on your list? Okay, so next on my list is a book that um, probably I, I could have covered earlier, but never did. Um, and that is uh, DC Universe Rebirth Superman number nineteen, which is uh, breaking with the banner treatment that most of the DC books. This has a side banner of Superman Reborn Part Three. Um. I'm not going to say too much about this, but and it's, I don't think it's really any secret. But you know what I'm going to say though? I just want to because we're talking about alternate covers. Yeah. Um, I don't have a side side banner. It's just below. Really? Okay. Yeah, on the cover I have. Interesting. So, yeah. so who's on the cover? Is it the guy in green? Uh, no, it's a guy in purple. Okay. And and gold and uh, with a little hat. Hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so so mine is uh, distinctly different. It's it's a character um, in a green cloak with uh, wrapped uh, wrapped legs, uh, one wrapped leg sticking out in front, and he's carrying a uh, a stick, a pole, or a, a spear. So that's with a character that's been there for quite some time. Yeah. Yes, running through the book. So, um, but if 
what we've been talking about for a long time has been that if you wanted, if we were expecting the story of the new 52 post flashpoint now rebirth all the twists and things that have been happening and missing years and such there was one book that we were thinking it was going to be in and that was flash and it's looking like it's going to at least start in superman which um you know we're at 19 but it still really hasn't been a full year and one of the things that was early on said by i think it was jeff johns was that rebirth's first year was going to be about redefining superman and and so I think that makes sense. You know, sometimes right or wrong. Uh, if it's not you, your 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 wife uh, Debbie accuses me of too much inside baseball on this kind of stuff. <laughs> but these are the things that leads me to predictions. And so that that one doesn't surprise me. You know what? I, I didn't think Flash was going to be it. I thought Titans would be more central um, because of the way that started out with everything being around Wally. But uh, but redefining Superman, although the funny thing to me is I don't think this is redefining Superman. I think this is just uh, reminding people why they liked Superman before. Um, certain people <clears throat> got their hands on the book and, and the character and completely messed him up. I think it's about building a better Superman. But it's the old one. Right, <laughs> right. No, it, well, it's not exactly the old one. But it is, it is a better Superman than what we've had for... Uh, yeah. 52 weeks you know. and and there's going to be and there's and there's movie news on that front as well so um that's you know that's that's very cool i'm glad it's finally unveiling i'm going to throw my last one in quick and we'll get to movie news which is uh that my last one's going to be angel city just because a cool noir book uh, with a female lead, and I called out no issue number one on on the podcast, and it's coming to an end here. Uh, or am I right? I shouldn't say that. Uh, I believe it's coming to an end. Oh, it, it has a question mark at the end. So there's going to be there's going to be a, a trade paperback. If you missed these indivi individual issues, Angel City subtitled Town Without Pity. But this has been a great book by Janet Harvey uh, and Megan Levins. Uh, I have just really, really enjoyed this book. Of course, you know, as I had a nice little Rocketeer encounter at CineQuest, uh, I do feel like there's something about this time period, the 30s and 40s. I wouldn't want to live there, but I sure love visiting it in in uh, in comics and, and movies and TV yeah, and, and even novels. Um, so this is a really cool book, Angel City. I'm going to move on to movies, and uh, I'll just say what that what that Building a Better Superman is. Uh, Warner Brothers, uh, we know that Matthew Reeves, right, was going to, uh, has been signed to direct uh, The Batman, uh, which has now been given a little breather room. This is just, this just in, because that just was revealed today, that uh, they are, that he is still going to direct it, but they had to push it back, not because of Ben Affleck's issues, but because uh, he's, Matthew Reeves is still contractually obligated to direct the third Planet of the Apes reboot oh. uh the war for the planet of the apes right not the battle this is the war right uh so he's got to get that out of the way and then and then he'll go into the batman but to me the more interesting and potentially exciting news is that warner brothers is seeking out matthew vaughn who directed kick-ass and and x-men first class uh to do man of steel 2 yeah 
yeah, I'd say yeah. this is a director who knows how to actually inject the fun while still taking the characters seriously. Yeah, I definitely I I can see that. I I I would see I would say that's hopeful that it will not resemble Man of Steel number one. Yes, which you know at the time. I think we we were kind enough to, but as, as you asked me earlier about that, I soften on Skull Island. I'm like, you know, no, no, no. But I'm realizing, you know, the further away you get from Man of Steel, the more you're like, keep that far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let that get farther and farther away. We were excited the first night, and then you think about it and go, eh, yeah, that part didn't really work for me. I don't know right? if it made it all the way home. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's a shame. We should have. We this does teach me, you know. I, I've said I've said this to to uh, well, I said this to Catherine Eaton. I, how much I enjoyed um, watching the sounding a second time. How I really sometimes really get regretful that I have to write a review after only seeing a movie once, mm -hmm. because you always see something else the second time. And when a movie's good, it gets better the second time. The sounding did that for me, and I gave it a pretty good review uh, up front. But Man of Steel was like, yeah, I, I, I thought, okay, there's a, there's some weaknesses, but I'll take this. And you know, conversely, Batman v Superman, I actually did like better once I knew all the things that I hated were coming. You know, <laughs> it's like, Jeez. okay, I can get past that. And then when you watch the Ultimate Edition, many of the things that bothered me were filled in by the by the footage that came back. You know, and, and so it's like, okay, this thing shouldn't have been three hours long. But at least now you answered my questions, you know, most of them. So uh, I want to see instead, like, like uh, you go back to X-Men First Class, that movie just, you know, hummed along. Yeah. And I needed that after X3. I guess the double whammy of X3 and, and X-Men Origins Wolverine. I needed something that really made me want to watch X-Men again. And and that was it, you know. So um, I would hope that Matthew Vaughn can totally bring that back in. I don't know who they're going to talk to about their other wacky rebooting and re revivification uh, scheme, which is Warner Brothers wants to go back to The Matrix, but without the Wachowskis. Yeah, No. Rumor has it they're looking, rumor, strictly rumor, and I always say that, and if you could somehow add neon flashing lights around <laughs> that word. Rumor. Hopefully, um, Search lights. <laughs> that they're looking at, looking for Michael B. Jordan, who is a great actor, uh, currently filming Black Panther, um, to star in this reboot, which then the rumor goes is, does this mean it's actually talking about uh, Morpheus as a young man? in the matrix discovering his role there um now there's an interesting thing i had this friend say uh post online okay i'm gonna call it on john solomon uh it is the guy he posts it wouldn't it be interesting that the reason warner brothers thinks that, that it's time for a matrix reboot is because they've seen the phrase red pill trending a lot in the news lately <laughs> You know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, is there somebody there just like, you know, at a movie studio whose job it is to see what key phrases from their films are are, are trending? Um, not understanding, of course, that the red pill has, you know, trending now has nothing to do with uh, with right, Matrix. But right, right. In fact, you know, so uh, but my argument back to him was actually like I enjoyed the first Matrix my problems with 2 and 3 uh, Reloaded and Revolutions is that what those were? Revolu I know Revolutions yeah I think it was uh, Reloaded and Revolutions yeah 
um, somebody else can write it and tell me if I'm wrong, that the problem, one of the problems I had with that, with those two movies was that they, they did not follow up on the promise of where Neo was at the end of The Matrix. But also what came along with that is that they did kind of an online graphic novel, and I think somebody collected it, these little short stories set in the matrix they put on right. O'Neill Gaiman wrote one no there was um, a there was a there was a uh, blu-ray collection yeah but, well no there's two there's two things here so I, I think they've done a trade paperback there are two trade paperbacks okay thank you and, and then there was the animatrix which right. was there were anime directors uh, creating little short stories and so my argument back to my friend John today was these those were really great stories exploring the corners of the matrix that the movies couldn't do. So I think there's room for interesting stories. I don't know that I care because those graphic, those trade paperbacks exist and I have the animatrix, you know, I mean, if I really had this urge to go back to good matrix stories that weren't the matrix, that's what I'd look to. So, you know, I don't know. And at this point, it, I think it's really more exploratory. It's sort of like that Jack Black version of Green Lantern. You know, they, they kind of, Warner Brothers has a history of leaking, quote unquote, uh, you know, or, or wiretapping stories, quote unquote, uh -huh. um, you know, leaking them out to the press to see how fans respond. And um, and so this one might be that it's like, well, is there really an audience for it? Uh, but I, I would agree with you, without the Wachowskis, that bothers me because they're still alive. You know, yeah. if, if the Wachowskis had passed away peacefully of old age or publicly said, we're done with the Matrix, if somebody else wants to pick it up, okay. Now right. I realize that Warner Brothers paid for it in the first place, so technically they own the IP. But it's still, you know, when something is so clearly of somebody's mind, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's like doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer now without Joss Whedon. You know, and, and it's it's just the the story bankruptcy in in Hollywood. You know, the when you when you look at the the Matrix, after you get past, I mean, they resolved the human machine conflict by the end of the third one. And if you if you if you need to go back there again for more stories, you really need to find a story that is involved again in that that. You can't just say these are set in the virtual reality world of the Matrix because that's that's nothing. It's better better just to do a brand new IP and not not. Uh, but those are bigger risks. I I get that. You know they are gambling and they. It, you know I, I was seeing some other article about why movie making is, you know just uh, is just troublesome right now is because nobody wants to take a chance on something new. Um, and we don't get we, we don't get great movies when people don't take risks. Well, there you go. But then we were just talking about Matthew Reeves not being able to do the Batman, which we're excited about the Batman, or I am, you know. Um, but it's, he can't do it because he's uh, yet because he's got to finish the reboot trilogy of Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So, but I get it because on 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 one hand, something like The Matrix is oh god, it's like twenty years old. Mm -hmm. And so a whole new generation is going to come up, and they know the name. Plus, it's you know I, I've mentioned this before. I've seen that pheno phenomenon with friends who go who get their ch one chance to go out to the movies in six months, and they don't know what to see, so they go for the title they know. 
that's how you know yeah. I, I would hypothesize that's how Charlie's Angels did as well as it did you know it, is because people remembered it and and that's why we see so many TV reboots and 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 I mean well I just heard today you know Fuller House is uh, the biggest show, you know is the is the biggest hit for Netflix that they have and internationally everybody's watching Fuller House so and and but when you said that to me I was like, yeah, I know exactly what it is, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> you know, so, um, but it has a name recognition, even though it's it's added the er, right? Um, maybe it should. Um, at this point, it should be the uh, aarp. Um, but <laughs> it's you know, I I get why they revisit that will well because you know I can say we're still going for superhero stuff, and one of the big con- we, you know, and we just like enjoyed Kong Skull Island, which is now. The fourth version of Kong, fifth, let's count the Japanese version, the Toho version, um, you know, and we don't get tired of that. I mean, because it's interesting that Skull Island was just called Skull Island when they announced it. And then in the last year, they snuck the name Kong back. Right, right. You know, because it was the same, you know, same character, but they had to make sure that nobody... Didn't know. Well, there were there were actually a couple other things. Um, you had a, you had a couple of books come out that called that were called Skull Island, um, the Doc Savage one, and then the Joe DeVito book both. Right, and they're both dealing with Kong though. Right, but they didn't have Kong. They just said Skull Island in the title. Then right, yeah. But if you're going to say that anybody paid attention to the Doc Savage, you know, please, mm-hmm. and and even the Joe DeVito, those were very very limited in their audience, and. You know, I think Joe DeVito's was probably probably had a wider audience. I don't know what those Doc Savage novels, uh, what their circulation is. No, it's nowhere know. near what it was in the '60s and '70s. Um, you know, it's it's a very precise. It's just like the you know, it's like those Pat Savage ones, as fun as they may be. But we're, at this we're point, at this point, we're not talking. About, at this point, we're not talking about marketing. We're talking about lawyers, and lawyers are squirrely. And yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I'm just saying in, in public awareness. You know, you can say yeah. those things existed, but you know, yeah. we're we're children of Doc. I think the Doc Savage fans, unless, man, please, Dwayne Johnson, make that movie. Um, you know, <laughs> which, by the way, did I mention? Did I I throw out my new candidate for 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 uh, to play Rennie? You did one recently. I can't remember who it was. I did John Cena. Yeah, but. I couldn't remember if I said it on the podcast or if we were just like, you know, hanging out and saying, hey, you know who'd be good? Um, because, yes, dear listeners, uh, at least once a month, Rick and I toss around dream casting for Doc Savage <laughs> and no one cares, you know, whether we record it or not. You know, it, it's, it's going to happen. I think the people uh, at the next table over at the restaurant are amused. The, uh, well, yeah, you have, a, again, as I mentioned last Saturday, and that's why I follow up with survey cards. Uh, so <laughs> to find out, I, 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 don't, I don't accept our own uh, belovedness. Um, so uh, let's, let's talk about things that are beloved. Um, TV. Uh, this week, I'm going to, again, flop what I – switch the way I have it because I, I want to end on a really high note. Okay. Iron Fist is coming out. Um, and the only reason we I know we talked about the whitewashing controversy and it's not whitewashing no Rand always was I refused but, I refuse to get excited about the about all the controversy because it's just like people who don't don't know I, I look I, on one hand I agree it's with you here's the thing the animated movie I wish that Finn free. Jones that is a common the young actor playing hang on just a second hang on just a second slow, so naturally it would make sense for them to 
I had a web page open and it started playing and it was only playing. Oh, that's what it was. It was playing through on my channel. You heard that? Okay. I did hear it slightly. All right. I just closed the whole browser down. All right. Um, Sorry, I didn't know where. Uh, I know where we're. Okay. I wish that Finn Jones, the young actor playing Danny Rand, had also chosen to ignore the controversy because he really made me not like him much this oh, week. Okay. <laughs> so uh, somebody got into a conversation with him on Twitter, which is like, can we all agree? Let's all just stop. Uh, tweeting conversations and thinking that's, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm making a play. Why, whatever do you mean? <laughs> you know, it's no way to debate. It's no, it's, it's, it's no way to have a conversation. No. Um, but so somebody had what, and I read the, that, that person's side of the conversations well and thought, no, that was a pretty reasonable, but I think he's probably been getting it a lot. Um, and first he said, uh, first he said, well, this is what happens when you try to have a conversation and left Twitter entirely. Oh. And, he, and then and then released a, a statement that, no, 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 I just have to concentrate on other things, you know, because we have the show launching, blah, blah, blah. This is why I'm leaving. Uh, I, don't, I don't have time for this. And then within eight hours, he reactivated his Twitter account and started tweeting again. And then saying, well, critics don't get it. This is for the fans. And the fans will totally get it. And now, you know, which is, I think, some of you That's are fine. arguing, too. Yeah. But, uh, no, it gets worse. Oh, my. <laughs> so, you know, and you say it's for the fans. And I'll say, look, I, I don't. I, I'm not I saying it's for want, the I'm not saying it's I, for the fans. I mean. I don't. You know, this is this is to my thing about brand brand recognition. Doing something for the fans at the kind of budget that they're, that they're trying to set forth. I got into a conversation uh, on Steve Mix's threat, uh, uh, Steve Mix's Facebook page with uh, a horror writer uh, named Setsu Uzumi, um, who she did not know the character at all, and and Steve was kind of late to the controversy and just kind of saying, well, you know, they had this opportunity, and I said, yeah, we, you know, it's all gone over, um, and it's just kind of, I guess my point more is that like. There was a description of if somebody, I think a couple of us brought up, you know, if they actually sort of told Immortal Iron Fist, that would be really interesting, yeah. you know, an adaptation of that Matt Fraction version. Right. But now the Netflix series is, while Marvel has done a great job in the last few years of making him, uh, of broadening Danny Rand's horizons, if you will, no lost horizons pun intended, but it came to my mind after it was out of my mouth, you know, uh, broadening that and giving a greater mystical thing, and yet... They're putting him in Netflix's street-level hero kind of thing. And we, we were all debating, like, well, these are the, the storylines we like uh, or would be interesting. Well, you could do this and this. And I said, yeah, and the problem is that they, they're locked into an Iron Fist who has to fit into the world of the previously announced five-episode Defenders. You know, he has to fit what those characters all are, and they has to be more realistic. Well, realistically, he, I mean, he was part of, I mean, Heroes for Hire with Luke Cage right down there in the, you know, the equivalent well, of the mission I mean, you know, district. Yeah, and, but here's the thing. It's like we, we've argued about people having their version of Spider-Man, of, of who they like, yeah. and say, like, if you came to Spider-Man, which, by the way, you know, my son just said he much prefers reading Miles Morales over reading Peter Parker, that he doesn't like reading Peter Parker in the kind of quasi Tony Stark role. 
Uh, you know, and I thought that was interesting because I, after years of seeing Peter Parker as a loser, uh, not, I mean, that's literally, you know, the old Parker luck and all that. Right. It's like, I've enjoyed that run because it's so different than everything else I read. But that's because I'm 51. You know, it's like, I've been reading Spider-Man since I was five. So is Luke. But, but Luke's only had seven years of it. And, you know, so... His he didn't get tired of that old older version of Spider-Man yet, so it's the same thing I think with Iron Fist. When I come to Iron Fist, the ones I've read are the Immortal Iron Fist and what David Walker was doing with Power Man and Iron Fist. So if you've made him goofy, and you know, like maybe not see you know really good when the chips are down, but but kind of like a little bit irritating to everybody. He might be irritating to everybody else on the Defenders. Um, then maybe I could I could accept that, but I, I'm going to accept it, whatever. But the, what he said to make it worse was that it's uh, uh, basically the headlines are it's 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 Donald Trump's fault that people don't watch Iron because we're we're too politically sensitive and too. Uh, oh, Trump! Political. Trump has Trump has made us much more. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so don't invoke that. That's that's funny. I'm just at this take the hit guy. If you're serious, I'm also not going to blame. I don't blame an actor who has been good in other things if the material he's he's in is not up to snuff, especially on a first season. You know, it's when somebody has a little more control uh, and knows the character better, and that's the flaw I think in the Netflix model. You know, they don't really get a chance to develop it. They work in a vacuum, and then 13 episodes are out all at once instead of. Oh, is this working? You know, they, you know, are people responding well to it? Um, eh, something to be said for both models. But I don't. I, we shouldn't dwell further. It's just it does come out this week. Uh, I got to finish Luke Cage, quite honestly. But I know I'm going to be watching Iron Fist as well. So, uh, but I, I'm I'm still most excited about seeing the Defenders. But what I'm absolutely most excited about is the return of Doctor Who on April fifteenth. So. Um, which you watched the trailer. Uh, you were one of many who tagged and pointed out uh, to me about that um, with a lot of callbacks, a lot of callbacks to original Doctor Who, and including, I you must have noticed, Nardal has Tom Baker's sonic screwdriver. I didn't notice that, but I, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, the only reason I know it is because every time I go to a toy store, I see the fourth Doctor Sonic Screwdriver. And I'm like, oh, that does look very different than any others. Um, you know, so he has that. We get the original versions of the Cybermen. We know that, um, and that's actually I think going to be in the last uh, the last episode of uh, of the regular season. Peter Capaldi is staying through to the Christmas special. But uh, his final, his big blowout as far as a regular series is uh, to face the original versions of the Cybermen, which were fr which had not appeared since uh, I can't remember the name of the episode, but uh, but William Hartnell's last, uh, the first Doctor's last uh, serial. So uh, it's kind of interesting. And in response to that, uh, Drew Simchick wrote an article that I put on Panway Planet about the reasons for the incarnations. For, for each regeneration, which kind of why he took on certain personalities. And someone wrote in, uh, a guy named, a reader named Adam Bryce, uh, wrote into Fanboy Planet and says, uh, you know, as we're talking about, well, what is, we talked a couple of weeks ago, like who would replace Peter Capaldi? Right. And he said, he asked, you know, I thought the rule was 
now that the doc has been male for 12 or 13 regenerations, he now has to regenerate as a woman. No choice left about it. His bod won't stay male anymore. No more testosterone, equivalent gland to regenerate, perhaps. Uh, I think, sorry, that was a bad hyphen. No more testosterone equivalent glands to regenerate, perhaps. And um, He's got two hearts, but only, no, only so many glands. Ma the master did regenerate as a woman, after all. Uh, after all that time as a man, so there may be a basis in it. We see a time lord in heaven sent. Killed by the doctor, still grumpy, uh, and regenerating as a woman and glad to be shut of all the testosterone egotism. So there is a choice of genders and regeneration up to a point, I think. And, uh, you know, my point back was it, they've established that for years because uh, Matt Smith mentioned that the Corsair and that the Corsair was much more fun and naughty as a woman. Um, you know, and, of course, Missy, uh, the master, um, you know, so we shall see. Drew actually responded, there's no rule, uh, especially when you go. Uh, Derek Jacoby was already well past the Masters' first set of regenerations, uh, and Capaldi is the first of a new cycle. So that's, the rules are out the, are out the window. I mean, I, I, there was, of course, I, I think you talked about that, a Gallifrey one, a lot of discussion about, well, what do you think? And everybody, you know, the big question is, should, should the new doctor be a woman? And everybody said, well, you know, Absolutely, there's no reason he shouldn't be, except that the uh, a, a woman as the doctor might not sell as well, which I think is BS. And then whenever somebody was challenged with that, I went yes, then make it a woman, and he, make him a woman, uh, make the doctor. Let's not say make him a woman, make the doctor a woman, uh, which I'm all for. But it is just kind of interesting. There's still marketing and business to discuss. But the only thing we do know at this point is uh, there was a panel on. What can we look forward to in the Chibnall years? And uh, someone said to me, you shouldn't go to that panel because I guarantee you that everything that is said in that panel will be wrong because nobody actually knows anything. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that's true. We don't, but we do know on April 15th we get Bill, we get Nardal, we get the doctor. And what is allegedly supposed to be a, a better jumping on point for people like, you know, to see it's it's meant to just sort of like Bill's introduction is going to be our introduction, like Rose was back with the Ninth Doctor coming back. It's not so. too far a prediction, but I, I am so looking forward to a number of episodes with, with Matt Lucas. And the, the uh, I'm I'm as much as I enjoyed um, as I enjoyed. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh Dan Starkey, uh, Strax. Uh, it's going to be the same kind of, a, a different type of comic relief. Um, and I, I just, everything, all, all the commercials we've seen with, with, uh, with, uh, Lucas in it have been just, uh, he you just, know, it just occurs to me, steals the scene. If I could make a, make a dream casting right now or a dream, dream thing to see is, uh, Nardole is almost like woozy winks. Yeah. I would love to see Matt Lucas star in a plastic man, live action plastic man adaptation as Woozy. He would be uh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of can he, occurred to me. I'm like, can he what, can he do an American accent? That's yeah. yeah. Okay. I think he can. I think. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he could. Right. He's British, of course they can. They're classically trained. They're better than us. That's, <laughs> that's, what, I, that's what I keep hearing about British actors from but, British uh, actors. Yes, I, I, I think I think he has been American in a couple of projects. He's so, probably done it on that uh, Little Britain show, at least. 
Well, they did Little Britain in America, I but I stopped watching that. I didn't like that version of it very well at all. Yeah. Um, and I know, and you've said you weren't a huge fan of Little Britain. It I don't was, know that I think the Little Britain was funny so much as the intensity of the character work yeah. was amazing. Yes. I, I think it was the Little Britain Christmas special where I just got so angry at some of Matt Lucas's characters and went, well... This is a testament to your character work, right? But I believe that character, and I think that character is utterly reprehensible. I had but, yeah, it, it, that was the character who pretended to be uh, wheelchair yes. bound. Yeah, yes. he was particularly vile, and yeah, uh, same uh, same reaction and same kind of analysis after the fact that he's really a really good actor as well as being a, a yeah. very, very good comic. A, you know, and that has the Doctor Who connection of Tom Baker being the narrator of that series. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Britain, Britain. Uh, so we recommend uh, Doctor Who. If not, uh, if you just want to see good character work, yes, watch Little Britain. But some of it's tough stuff. It really is. It is. So um, I, I've, I've got the whole thing on DVD, and I do dig it out every now and then just to kind of get inspiration for character work just because the commitment is so strong but uh you know so that's it our commitment remains strong we will uh be recording later with part two of our cinequest interviews uh and uh and then who knows what news will be next week because things just keep happening um so uh and oh Dear Lord, do we get to talk? Should we just start previewing now that we landed a pretty good interview for May? Um, we should. Let's just say that we landed a, an extremely good interview for May, and uh, next week we'll say where in May, and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll expose this uh, over a couple of weeks. Actually, and, and we'll reveal that interview letter by letter <laughs> be like drink more oval team what a crummy commercial son yeah. of a anyway hey thanks for listening this week and uh <laughs> once again if you have any questions comments compliments commentary criticism write into editor at fanboyplanet.com or tweet us at fanboyplanet or uh go to the facebook page at fan which is slash fanboyplanet and you can leave comments there um uh, and um Hey, thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. And this is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com. And this is Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use, use your, your powers, powers only for, for good. good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com.